0: here at 10 a.m. If you're able to make it, I know it would be a blessing to the family. And we can all gather together to glorify the Lord and appropriately honor our dear sister, uh, Lynn Clutter. Will Rogers once said that the only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. The master of malapropisms, baseball player Yogi Berra. Remember Yogi Berra? He said, always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. Joshua Burns said, the trouble with quotes about death is that 99.9% of them are made by people who are still alive. Think about it. At the pearly gates, St. Peter greeted a minister and a congressman and gave them their room assignments. and said, Pastor, here are the keys to one of our nicest deficiency units. And for you, Mr. Congressman, the keys to our finest penthouse suite. The minister complained, well, this is unfair. St. Peter said, listen, ministers are a dime a dozen up here, but this is the first congressman we've ever seen. Anybody believe that? Recording in progress. Now, some humor illustrates how some people think of death with images of St. Peter there at the pearly gates, the gatekeeper. Of course, we could pick apart the bad theology in these jokes. And though this is men's humor, it's not far from the way that a lot of people think about death, that our eternal state is kind of like the scales of justice, you know, that our eternal state is decided with your good works outweighing the bad works, as long as the good works outweigh the bad works, you're good, right? Tom McIndarfer calls the gates at our handicapped entrance the pearly gates, so I guess that would make him or maybe Dave Troutman St. Peter, start calling Tom St. Peter. If any of you are like me, you can't help but think of death this past week. How many of you have spent a lot of time thinking about the Clutter family, about Lynn's passing? I think all of us have to some degree. For all of us thinking about our dear sister in Christ, Lynn Clutter. Caleb, can you click on that screen so I can advance the slide? There we go. It's not been... Far from our minds since a week ago last Tuesday when she passed from this life into eternity with Christ. In addition to that common line of thinking that I think most of us this morning can really relate to, I was heavily invested in preparing for the memorial service for tomorrow here at 10 a.m. at TCF. And that meant details like the order of service, like a video with hundreds of images, a brief funeral message to prepare, and dozens of other things. So forgive the theme this morning but it's what I've been swimming in mentally and emotionally all week long and I want to suggest this morning that this is not at all a bad thing for us to think about there's probably nothing that's so common to all of us that we talk about less we'll talk often sometimes we'll talk daily about the weather about our favorite sports or hobbies about food about our family If we're devoted believers, we might even talk to somebody about the Lord daily, about spiritual things, about our relationship with Him. But despite the reality that there's no one that this topic does not affect, we never seem to talk about death. It's kind of understandable for those who are atheists or agnostics. I can see why they wouldn't want to talk about it, right? To them, death means the end of existence. For those who really believe there is no God, there's no heaven, there's no hell. Beatles singer and songwriter John Lennon wrote a popular song called Imagine back in 1971. Many of you know that song. And one verse in that song says, Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Now living for today pretty much describes the world we live in now, doesn't it? Let's not think of anything so horrible as death and what happens after that. But shouldn't it be different for those of us who are in Christ? What do we truly believe about that moment of death for a Christian? When someone dies, it's a real test of what we really believe in and trust in. Yes, we live in the world, we have to live one day at a time, yet, we should always be looking forward to that day that the Lord takes us home. Now, I've read this passage of Scripture I'm going to read here in a moment at most funerals I've done. I will read it tomorrow. Because there is resurrection power in these words of Paul to the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 21, says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Now, I've mentioned to some of you, really through the years, not just recently, and you may think it a little bit morbid or at least weird but many of you have come to expect weirdness of me right i've been coach bill for 30 years in bible Bowl. it takes a certain level of weirdness to do that but the very fact that i have to explain my line of thinking here this morning at the outset of this sermon is a picture of one of the challenges that we face as believers these days we don't talk about death we don't talk about dying maybe we should Maybe we should more, because so much of my thinking these past few weeks has been consumed with this reality of our earthly existence and our eternal destiny in Christ. The reality of death and dying. And because I was scheduled to preach this week, I had a sense that this was not an accident in God's timing. And that this Sunday we should linger on these thoughts just a little bit longer. Now, I could have switched gears, and for the sake of doing something, quote, more positive today, but think about this, what could be more positive than the reality that for as us as believers in Christ, we have an eternal destiny with Jesus that we can anticipate, knowing that it's in our future, knowing that because of what the Word of God reveals, that our eternal destiny in Christ is immeasurably better than the best things about our life here on earth. Isn't that a significant part of the gospel? Which, after all, what does gospel mean? It means good news. So, in that sense, if you think about it that way, this is a very positive message. Shouldn't we as believers in Christ ponder the meaning of death and how we respond to it? Shouldn't the way we die, the way we view death, be different from the way the world views death? Should we be so hesitant to speak of these things when we serve the Lord of lords, the one who conquered death with his cross and the resurrection? Shouldn't we consider the biblical truth that the resurrection has consequences in our Christian lives today? It's not just about what we look forward to, it's about how does it impact the way we live our lives today. Consequences that should impact what we think about, what we talk about, and more specifically, how we think about death and perhaps most importantly, how we live our lives. I have to admit, I've spent a lot of time in the past few years thinking about death and dying. Maybe because just a few years ago, Barb and I experienced the death of three of our four parents in an 18-month period. That was preceded by caring for Barb's parents, her mom who had Alzheimer's, her dad who had Parkinson's, most of you remember Herb and Gigi. We knew that when we took them into our home, We were going to experience with them the final months and years of their lives. It would have been foolish not to consider the reality of dying and what that looked like. And then, just in the last year or so, Joe Beck, Art Turner, Bob McWilliams, Carl Eason, Jimmy Garrett entered eternal life in Christ. I've told many of you that I appreciate the opportunity to preach funerals, even more so... Than weddings, And I've done weddings, and I love doing them, but I've done more funerals. There's something about a funeral that is unavoidable. While a good Christian wedding will absolutely have a picture of the gospel included in it, the mystical union between Christ and his church, at a funeral you cannot avoid the question of what happens to us after we die. What's more, you have a captive audience that expects to hear about it. Some, or many sometimes, depending on whose funeral it is, who are attending a funeral, they never darken the door of a church except to go to a funeral. And this will be the case tomorrow, too. That's why I consider a Christian funeral to be a gospel opportunity like no other. Please be praying with me about tomorrow, okay? Please be praying with me that the Lord will plant gospel seeds in the things that are spoken tomorrow by me, but also by others who will be on this stage. Now, I felt the need to explain why I'm thinking about these things. Because it's not something many of us think about deeply, seriously, over a period of time. It seems strange. seems different. seems gloomy. seems the only time we think about these things is when we have funerals. And talking about death, can we be honest, it makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? It's not just old folks at TCF that should be thinking about these things. It's all of us. In fact, I kind of regret that the basic youth are away on a trip. They're coming back this morning. Because even if you're a teenager in your 20s or 30s or 40s, the thoughts that I'm sharing with you this morning are things you should think about as well. Because of what the Apostle Paul tells us here in this passage, and because of what we mark each week when we do communion here at TCF, Jesus' death and resurrection and all that it means to us. It's important for us to think about death and dying and all the related issues. It's important because despite differences in individual circumstances, despite differences in medical decisions that are made, some of these are very personal in later in life. There are some common themes that Christians have throughout the centuries thought about and taught about when it comes to death death. And dying, Paul said to the Philippians that to depart and be with Christ is far better. Far better than staying in our mortal bodies. For the believer it's far better. So why are we so distant from these kinds of thoughts? Why are we so uncomfortable talking about these things? So funerals are not just an important milestone for the individual family involved, but they're important in the life of the whole fellowship. They're important because the things we think about and remember during a funeral are important for our own spiritual formation, our discipleship in Christ, our understanding of his grace and his salvation. In a uh, book I read actually some years ago, it was called The Art of Dying, we read that our culture simply doesn't know what to think about death. Through medicine and science, we know more about death and how to forestall it than ever before, yet we know very little about caring for a dying person. We don't know what to expect or how to prepare for our own death. And we're often awkward at best when trying to comfort a friend in grief. We have come to expect medical breakthroughs, vaccines, and wonder-working drugs. And then he writes, it's clear that our paradoxical approach to death is largely due to the fact that we're strangers to death, despite it being ever-present. We see fake death, right? We see it on TV, we see it in the movies, and it's not real to us. We see real death on the news from Ukraine, or Asia, or the Middle East, or from mass shootings in our own country, and it's not real to us. It's a little bit too distant from us, unless it strikes us personally. There's some significant changes, too, in the way people die in modern times. Did you know that in 1908, only 14% of deaths occurred in a hospital or nursing home of some kind? Now, by the end of uh, the century, it was nearly 80%. Of course, there are good reasons for that. One of those reasons is that medical science has made so many advancements that prolong life, and the corresponding truth that it's often prolonged the dying process. Clearly, medical science has improved life in many ways, and we should be thankful for that of one of, as one of God's good gifts of His grace. But one of the side effects is that we're protected from what dying looks like. Usually it's only close family members and friends see a dying person in the hospital, and unless we're some, like some of you, some of us here who've recently lost a loved one, after a debilitating illness, or maybe they die suddenly. We're strangers to death, again, except at funerals, which don't happen that often, and many of us don't attend. And it hasn't always been this way. It hasn't been this way in our culture in general, and it hasn't always been this way among believers in Christ. In every phase of Christian history, the church has considered seriously how to help believers die well and how the family of God can join together to provide hope and support when one of their own dies. Through much of church history, death hasn't just been a medical event, a medical battle to be fought. Also, it wasn't just about the loss of precious relationships that we mourn. It clearly was and is that. The grief is very real. Let's not dismiss that in any way. We must give each other permission to grieve, in our own individual way, for as long as that takes. But for the church, death was a spiritual event that required preparation. And not just for the person dying, not just for their family and friends, but for the entire church, with the knowledge that it's something we will all face. Though it seems distant for many of us, especially those of us who are younger, in the scheme of things, life is just a blip on the radar screen, of eternity. Yes, life is short. In the second half of the 15th century, if you know your history, that's when the plague devastated Europe and Christians were very much involved. They were at the forefront of helping people prepare for death because so many people were dying in that era. Sometimes nearly whole towns, no one was immune from the plague. Churches published booklets Tracks on what was called the Ars Moriendi. Anybody know Latin? The Art of Dying. These were books about how to practice good deaths. There were some common themes in these booklets. They included the fact that death requires preparation, they included the fact that the dying process is a deeply spiritual event. I've described it as a holy moment when you're present with a believer in Christ when they take their last breath. Death is to be actively undertaken. Death is a public and instructive event and death injures the community. Well so today this message is doing number four on this list. Death is a public instructive event. A recent death in our fellowship is a public and instructive event. It's not just about our dear friends the Clutter family. Rob Mole, the writer of this book, writes, the Ars Moriendi tradition blossomed not only because of the emergence of the plague but also because Christian tradition asserted that the death of a follower of Christ was to be different from those who die without faith. This life is only the prelude to an eternal life with Christ. We, like Jesus, will be reunited with our glorified bodies. We will worship God corporately for eternity so we have reason to hope and to be in peace as our life on earth comes to an end. So today, in our day and time, we know more about death, we know more about how to delay it than we've ever known before. Medical science, nutrition, general care for our health are things that many of us rely on, and that's all well and good. But regardless of how well you eat, regardless of your genetic makeup, Regardless of the longevity that you might have in your family history, regardless of how much you exercise and take good care of yourself, the day will come. Your life on earth will end. If the Lord does not return first, you will die. It's not if you die, it's when you die. Death is an, undefi- und- excuse me, an undeniable fact of life for all of us. Of course, that and taxes, right? Because of that, I think it's important for the Christian to think about and prepare both practically and spiritually for this inevitable event in each of our lives and in the lives of everybody we know. Let's be brutally honest here, too. We're an aging church, my brothers and sisters. Look around. In the next five to ten years, more of our number will be leaving us to be with Jesus. So preparing our hearts for the reality of death is at least as important as caring for our physical health and our well-being, into which many of us invest huge amounts of money and time, and that's not necessarily wrong. Again, Paul thought that this was true. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, "...bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come." Here's Paul again. And he's prioritizing, he's comparing, he's contrasting. In this case, he's contrasting bodily discipline, on the one hand, with godliness or spiritual discipline. And he's making the point that the promise of spiritual things benefits us both in the here and now and in the life to come. So don't hear me say you shouldn't take care of your physical health. Paul didn't say it was of no profit. He just said, by comparison to godliness, it's of little profit. So I'll take advantage of the little profit that I can get by taking good care of my physical well-being. Believe me, if I attach no importance to that at all, I wouldn't exercise six days a week because it's not that much fun. But Paul tells us that godliness is profitable for all things, including the present life and the life to come. That's why Paul... To Paul, the thought of death was not in the least bit dark or out of bounds for discussion. He writes of it almost matter-of-factly. We see this in several of his epistles. But let me read this passage again that we read at the outset from Philippians chapter 1. Beginning with verse 21. For to me to live, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose, I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me." We see several things here that are very instructive for us. First, we see the very real tension between what Paul sees as two good things. Life is a good thing. Life is good, brothers and sisters. It's a good thing. It's a gift from God. But so is death for the believer in Christ, Paul said, to die is gain. Because of her Alzheimer's disease, we miss Gigi, Barb's mom, even before she went to be with the Lord. It's like she died twice. We had anticipatory grief long before she actually died. We know that Scripture tells us our times are in His hands and that God has numbered our days. We also know what Paul tells us here in Philippians. To be with Christ is better by far. It's true for Lynn, and someday it will be true for each of us who are Christians. So the Apostle Paul was torn. Lynn was torn. But you know what her last words to Bruce were? I'm ready to go. Sometimes we are torn. Sometimes it's hard to know whether to pray for healing or to pray for mercy and grace as God ushers a believer into eternal life. But so often, even as we looked at briefly last week, I think it's absolutely appropriate to pray for both and then to rest in God's perfect plans. The King James Version puts it this way, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Don't you love that old English word, betwixt? I wanted to use that translation because I thought it would be cool to use a word like betwixt in a sermon. Paul's essentially saying that he cannot determine equally between these two choices that are both good. The words, I am in a strait" or in more modern translation, says, I am torn. It means to feel pressed in, to feel pent up, not knowing what to do. Doesn't our strong affection for our loved ones tie us to them in a very similar way? Like an anchor. But will we allow that heavenly understanding of better by far to lead us and to comfort us? Now, as Paul considers this dilemma, it's also clear where he begins. He's thinking about what's good for him. If there were no other considerations, at first in verse 21 he says, For me. For me. So for Paul, both choices were good, but to depart and be with Christ was better by far for him. And that's where his challenge begins. I think it's clear that if Paul had no other considerations but his own peace, his own safety, his own comfort, he would say, come take me now, Lord. Why else would he say that to be with Christ is better by far? How else could Paul so casually call his own death something as simple as departing? It's important to understand how forceful these words better by far really are. In the Greek, it's a double comparative. It means by far the more preferable. In our vernacular, we might say way, 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 way better. It's a very emphatic statement. Better beyond all expression. That's how Paul understood his death and the death of any believer in Christ. So Paul had no fear of death. He was absolutely confident that when he departed this life, he would be with Christ. The very moment he died, he would be with Jesus. He speaks of it as departing. Isn't that interesting, a metaphor which does not, like many of the flattering appellations which men give that last enemy, reveal a quaking dread which cannot bear to look him in his ashen, pale face. Paul calls him, death, gentle names because he fears him not at all. To him, all the dreadfulness, the mystery, the pain, and the solitude have melted away and death has become a mere change of place. The word literally means to unloose, and it's employed to express pulling up the tent pegs of a shifting encampment or drawing up the anchor of a ship. In either case, the image is simply that of removal. It is but the last day's journey, and tomorrow there will be no packing up in the morning and resuming our weary tramp, but we shall be at home and go no more out. So has the awful thing at the end dwindled, And the brighter and greater the land behind it shines, the smaller does it appear. The apostle thinks little of dying because he thinks so much of what comes after. Isn't that a great way to think about this? Paul reinforced this confidence as well as this tension we all live with in other places in Scripture. Another passage of Scripture that you may hear tomorrow if you're here at the service is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it here in this last verse we see another theme that's also present in the passage in philippians we make it our goal to please him either here on earth or in the presence of god in philippians paul noted it's more necessary for you that i remain in the body convinced of this i know that i will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. That was Paul's heart. He had more to do, and at this particular moment in time, he knew it. Later, he knew that his life was almost over, which we'll see in a moment. Paul, despite his struggle, despite being torn betwixt two good choices, was convinced that it was more necessary for his Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ as well as the other churches he ministered in, that he remained. So even though it was better by far for him to depart this life and be with Christ, now of course it's not as if Paul really got to choose whether to live or to die. That's always God's choice. But the Holy Spirit gave him insight and a confidence so that Paul could say, I know that I will remain. We don't always know like Paul knew. We don't always have a sense when our time is short. But Paul did later in his life have that sense when he wrote this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he wrote, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, because Paul was human like we are, he probably was at least a little bit apprehensive about death, at least in the sense that he'd never done it before. And he didn't know what the process would feel like. That great philosopher Woody Allen once said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But what was beyond the moment of death was what gave Paul confidence and hope. And it soothed any apprehension he had about the process of death itself. Paul's only reason for wishing to die was to be with Christ. It wasn't because he was sick of this life. It wasn't because of the sorrow or the pain that he experienced. And all you have to do is read the Acts of the Apostles, and his epistles, and there's a long list of the things that Paul suffered. He wanted to be with his Lord and Savior. He preferred it. The great 1800 Scottish preacher Alexander MacLaren said of Paul, He chooses nothing but accepts the appointment of a higher wisdom. There is rest for him as well as for us in ceasing from our own wishes and in laying our wills silent and passive at his feet. We submit. We submit to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who created us, the one who knows what is best for all of us. One of the many things we can be certain of is something that I once heard Willard Hudson say in a sermon from this pulpit about a year before he died. He wrote that we are immortal until our work is done. Paul knew when he wrote to the Philippians that his work wasn't done. When he wrote to Timothy, he had a sense that his work was nearly complete. So whatever medical decisions we make under any circumstances, we can live out our faith in God, our love for one another, and our confidence in the resurrection. Death is still, as Paul wrote, the last enemy. It does bring grief to us. So let me just repeat this. Tears and grief are absolutely appropriate. They're expected. They're normal. Death is not a part of God's primary purpose for his creation. Yet, for the follower of Christ, death is also a part of God's mercy. It's the last of life's sufferings. It's the beginning of new life in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no evil so great that God can't bring joy and goodness from it. This is why death deserves attention in life because we instinctively want to avoid it, we want to turn our face away, it's good to look death in the eye and constantly remind ourselves that our hope is in God who defeated death. God has defeated death through Christ. God wins, my brothers and sisters. Death loses. When I read this closing scripture we're going to hear in just a moment at a graveside service, I often remind those present that this is the ultimate trash-talking. You know what trash talking is? You heard that. You hear about it in sports. You know how people brag on the basketball floor or the football field. You can't beat me. I'm better than you. It's a form of intimidation. It's called talking trash. I'm taking you to the hoop, and there's not a thing you can do about it. You can't stop me. Now, once when I was playing a game of around-the-world basketball with Bill Sanders, there's me on the left with with my arm around Bill Sanders. That's one of our art and basketball camps back in the late 90s. And uh, you know what around the world is? Have you played that game? You got like five spots you got to go. You got to hit a shot, hit a shot, and you keep going until you miss. If you miss, you have the option to stay, but if you uh, or take a second shot. If you take the second shot and make it, you keep going. But if you miss, you got to go back to the beginning. So I was playing this game. I got about halfway around. I missed a shot, and I decided to stay put. And I didn't want to miss the uh, take a chance that I would miss again. And have to go all the way back to the beginning. And when I said I was going to say to put, put, Bill said, are you sure? I said, yeah. He said, you shouldn't have done that. And then he proceeded to go all the way around, make every shot, going all the way around the course and win the game. <laughs> After that, I called him the trash-talking pastor. He talked trash. But you know what? He talked trash before he beat me, and then he backed it up by winning. Trash talking is no good if if you don't back it up, right? God wins, my brothers and sisters. God wins. Jesus has already won the victory for those of us who are in Christ. So death does not have the last say. We shouldn't think about these things only at funerals or only when somebody we know has passed away or only if we're older. We should think about these things often because even if we're young, we never know how many days we still have on earth. We've experienced sudden death. I mean, I think of Joe Beck and Art last year, just last year. I mean, it was surprising, both of them. The reality that God wins should affect our every choice in this life. Listen now. In this passage of Scripture we're going to read as we close. Paul talks trash to death. Listen to this declaration of victory because it's already complete even though it's not made apparent to us. And listen for his final admonition of how to live our lives doing the work of the Lord in the light of his victory over death. Beginning with verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't just leave us stumbling about in the darkness of death, wondering what it all means, but you're so clear in your word, Father, that death for the believer is a mercy. Death for the believer means the beginning of life life with you, life in eternity, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross and because we have trusted in that sacrifice. So, Lord, we do pray that even as we grieve now, even as we grieve tomorrow, as we mark this occasion, Father, that your Holy Spirit would bring comfort and peace and understanding of all these things and that these things would not be things we would think about just now, and then forget on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. But these kinds of things would impact the way we live our lives because they are true. In Jesus' name, amen.